And so at these horse auctions, you have all kinds of vendors there for saddles and spurs or whatever they do. And there's always this one guy, he's a pop-up jeweler. And why is a pop-up jeweler there? Well, he's alone. No other jeweler is going to be there. And these guys are spending, you know, a million dollars on a horse, make sure they get the tennis bracelet for their wife. And, you know, you think about that, it's an extreme case, but there's a guy that understands that if you're alone and you're the only game in town and it's a game people want to play, you're in the driver's seat. This is Superfast Business with James Schramko. James Helping you build your business super fast. James Schramko here. Welcome back to superfastbusiness.com, episode 669. And today we're going to be talking about how to over-deliver. So the best person for that is Brian Kurtz from overdeliverbook.com. Welcome. Oh, thanks. And uh, wow, it's 669. Yeah. You're a busy guy. I feel like, you know, it took this long, but I'm pleased to be here. Yeah, well, we get there eventually. Like uh, we're just chatting before we went on to record. I've uh, been doing this for about 10 years. So, you know, it's a slow, long game. I think that's one of the latter chapters of your book, Over Deliver. Yes, playing the long game. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. So we get there eventually, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, life's long. So, you know, we play it that way. So I like that. I like that. I liked a lot of things in your book because they're things that I was often nodding my head as I read it, thinking, yeah, we're on a very similar page. And it makes sense that we have so many friends in common. You have your forward by Jay Abraham. You've got Ryan Levesque, John Carlton, David Deutsch, Paris, Frank Kern, Ryan Dice. So we are circling in the same field. It was just inevitable over time. I guess I could have done more database mining and statistical analysis to arrive at you a little bit earlier. (laughs) Even Kevin Rogers, I'm just absolutely surrounded by copywriting and direct response marketing people. Yeah, me too. Throw in a few halberts, you know, we've got the whole game sewn up. I've been an admirer of yours for many years, so this is a real treat. So thank you for having me on. Something I love to do is to have book authors because I know my audience are rabid book consumers. Every time we have a book author, the book gets purchased in multiple formats. I want to talk about a couple of things in there because I think you've provided some great information in the book. The book itself, wonderful. Thank you. And there's a couple of key points I just want to zoom to. We'll have a conversation around and see where we go. And I thought was interesting, especially something that you mentioned that we don't hear too much about about is you provide for the concept that we shouldn't expect that Facebook will be the single source of traffic that we could depend on in the future. Right. We have to be careful about that. You specifically talk about multi-channel marketing. I'd love it if you could start there. And as we go, we can unfold a little more about the story of Brian, but I want to dig straight into a topic that's close to my heart because I've been talking about this concept for the last decade and I don't think everyone's on the same page yet. I know a lot of people are single source dependent for their traffic and more specifically, their single Facebook dependent, you know, their Facebook paid ads is the only traffic source they're relying upon. And I'm wondering your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it's the old story that the most dangerous number in business is one. You know, one of anything is dangerous. And not only is it dangerous, it's also really boring. I have a website called www.singlechannelmarketingissoboring.com. And if you go to that site, if you actually take the time to type that in, you get to my webpage. So it's near and dear to me when I launched my business five years ago. It was super important that the crux of my mastermind groups were all about multi-channel marketing. I didn't want anybody in my group that was committed to one channel or even two or three. I wanted people to explore more channels. 
I think that you can test channels inexpensively, whether it's offline or online. I mean, direct mail is kind of expensive, so I wouldn't go there first necessarily. But there are so many different ways to test online and offline channels. And as you said, with Facebook, while it's the largest, it's the most prevalent, I think that the big mistake there is that, you know, they're Facebook and we're not. And, you know, in a heartbeat, you could get kicked off, which we all know about. And if that's your only channel, you're out of business. I know of people that have been in that situation, but it's not just Facebook. You know, it's Amazon. I know somebody who had a business on Amazon, a $30 million business. And Amazon one day said, I don't like your ads anymore. And they kicked them off. So that's the one reason to be in multi-channel. But the other reason is when you start getting channels to work with each other in tandem. So, you know, I remember one of the stories I tell in the book was about when we went into the infomercial business and it took a long time, but we finally got in it. And once we got in it and we had a couple of successes, we not only were working in the uh, infomercial business, but we took the product and brought it back to direct mail. And in direct mail, it was a product that was kind of dead. But with the new stuff that we were doing on TV, we were able to take all the stuff from the infomercial and put it in the direct mail package. And then we started doing some display advertising on the same thing. So to get to a multi-channel approach, if you get one working, you can start getting other channels working simultaneously. And sometimes you can't even tell where the order came from. Attribution becomes an issue. But as long as you can attribute it to one of the channels, you're fine. And I think that it's dangerous and it's boring to be in one channel and to be just in Facebook. Now, having said all that, you know, Facebook is a powerful medium and I don't you know, dismiss it at all. But to be there alone or to be there, you know, with 60 percent of your business, I think is just dangerous and just not as exciting. And I think it might have been Jay Abraham who said, you know, what some people do is they find a traffic channel that's more profitable, like the higher return on investment. Yes. And then they dump one and go to the other when they should just add it. Right. Right. It's an and not an or. Yeah. And that's such an important point. Jay talks about that a lot. You mentioned about direct response via you know, physical letters. And you said something in the book about filling their letterbox. Yes. I liked that. It's like sending big things that blow them away. I still send packages that won't fit in a letterbox. And it's so rare because there's not much mail going around. The guy who delivers our mail, the lady, I see her sometimes when I go for a surf. She doesn't have a very big cart. Right. Like there's not that much mail. Like you could go for days without receiving a letter these days. That was different 20 years ago. Right. So that's one reason why, you know, a lot of people are, you know, oh, let's try this new medium called direct mail. <laughs> it's, you know, the, the least crowded inbox is the one at the end of your driveway or the one, you know, in the lobby of your building. But the interesting thing, chapter three of my book says how paying postage made me a better marketer. And one of the interesting things for people that, you know, are not in direct mail and don't want to be, they still can use the disciplines. I think that, you know, the advantages of doing a promotion that has to pay out when you're spending, you know, 300, 400, $500 per thousand makes it so that you can't just hit send when it's cheap. And so I've taken that premise and said to online marketers and email marketers, you know, you can use the same kind of discipline and the same kind of thought when you're sending out email. And what happens is, you know, the best email marketers I know, and it's a lot of the people you mentioned before, are the people that understand that, you know, everything's not a revenue event, but everything's a relationship event. 
And you've got this opportunity online. I mean, you know, I'm 61, so I've been around, but I'm also like wide-eyed and excited about the possibilities of being able to give away great content before going in for the sale. Whereas in direct mail, you know, you really had to go for the sale because you couldn't afford to, you know, just send out information. Now, the interesting thing is one of the things we pioneered in direct mail was the Magalog and the Bookalog, which are longer pieces, you know, 32 pages, 64 pages. And in the Bookalog or the Magalog, there was some content. So it was almost a precursor to product launch formula or a precursor to an email launch. So I think the disciplines of direct mail are really interesting when you start taking a look at them and then putting them into an online environment. But as you say, you know, you've got less crowded mailboxes, you've got a lot more opportunity for ingenuity. And as far as the packages that don't fit in the mailbox, you know, I always say that, you know, mailing 9 million pieces is the same as mailing, you know, 900 or nine. And the reason I say that is that if you're doing an online business and you've ascended people into a higher ticket and you want to do direct mail on the back end and it's high ticket, you can be investing a lot more in the direct mail to excite them. So sending out physical products, sending out all kinds of lumpy packages to people who are your best customers makes perfect sense. And as you said, it's just not being done that much. And so there's a lot of opportunity. And again, it's still an and, it's not an or. I don't even think that people should start with direct mail. It's just too expensive. And if you don't know what you're doing, you'll screw it up. But if you can use direct mail on the back end of an online business, it's outstanding. And you can go back and forth. I have a section in my book called O to O to O, which is online to offline to online. And the beauty of this multi-channel approach is that it can go either way. You can go online, offline, and back online again. And you meet the customer where they want to be met. And we have so much at our fingertips today. So it's an exciting time to be a marketer and using media that is underused. Dan Kennedy always says, be the only person, you know, be alone in something, whether it's, you know, in direct mail or anywhere else. He told a story. He spoke at one of my events recently and he told a story, you know, he's a jockey. And so he goes to horse auctions. And so with these horse auctions, you have, you know, all kinds of vendors there for saddles and spurs or whatever they do. And there's always this one guy, he's a pop-up jeweler. And why is a pop-up jeweler there? Well, he's alone. No other jeweler is going to be there. And these guys are spending, you know, a million dollars on a horse, make sure they get the tennis bracelet for their wife. And, you know, you think about that, it's an extreme case, but there's a guy that understands that if you're alone and you're the only game in town and it's a game people want to play, you're in the driver's seat. And so it goes all the way down to media. I don't want to be known as the direct mail guy, but I do want to be known as the multi-channel guy and direct mail is included. Yeah, there's so much in what you just said there. <laughs> I'm glad you came up for air. You could take a video sales letter and have it transcribed and send it out as a letter in the post and you'll get a high open rate, of course, with physical mail. Yeah. So that's one practical way people could start to implement this. Yeah, you know what? That's true. That's true. Another way that I've found particularly effective is 
sending out great things to people who purchase stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's a great retention and loyalty thing. You mentioned a great point. You can spend more than you think on your customers. Yes. Especially if they've just purchased as well. You know, it's validated and that is the next opportunity. You owe to owe to owe to owe. So sending out things, even when I run my live events, I give people quite a few gifts at the last event. Mm-hmm. So many that it cost me a fortune to mail a few to people who couldn't come to the event for various reasons. It was like two and a half kilograms of package. Oh, wow. Which you multiply by 2.7 to get pounds. So it's heavy. Right. And you know, some people had to reorganize their luggage, which was great. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of other things you said, which you're interesting. The Magalog, I didn't know you were one of the pioneers of that, but I definitely have used those in the past, especially when I spoke internationally. I would hand out a Magalog to people who purchased at the event because then they had something tangible that was educational about the thing they just purchased. Yeah. And it was a physical thing. You know, it was a high quality, double-sided printed brochure summarizing everything they'd purchased in the offer. And I haven't seen people do that when they speak from stage. Yeah. But that was the way that I was going to cover the objection of being from another country and having a fully digital delivery. Like it was websites and coaching and education. So I wanted to give them something in their hands to cement that sale. That makes such sense. I'll add to your point about, you know, that you can spend more than you think. I had a client a couple of years ago who had a, I don't know, a twenty or $25,000 program and a $10,000 program. And they were basically, you know, their main form of getting new customers was mostly, you know, a lead generation to a phone call, you know, to a, an interview. And I started asking them, I said, well, you got this great program, you know, they're paying 20 or $10,000 a year. What's your renewal rate? And they said, oh, people generally stay with us for at least three years. So I said, you need to look then at the fact that your allowable is not 10 or 20, your allowable is 30 or 60. And if you've got that much money, do you realize that you can do direct mail, you can do, you know, a lot of other things, you could do broadcast if you want, you've got the ability, they weren't thinking out of the box to spend more money, because they were doing okay, and they were getting enough clients, but they could take more, but they have to spend more. And I do talk about that in the book, when I talk about lifetime value and continuity, because, you know, that's the premise of direct marketing. I mean, no direct marketing business can succeed without repeat business. And the repeat business gives you an opportunity to get renewals. You get a renewal, you get a much higher lifetime value, and you can invest more to get new customers. So that's a beautiful thing, but you have to deliver a great product. And they were delivering a great product. That's how they were getting three-year renewals. But now once you got that, use that to your advantage and reinvest without being stupid. I mean, you don't want to throw good money after bad, but it's a great way to reinvest. So these kinds of things are just so obvious, but maybe not to everybody. So, you know, I like to bring it out and that's why I wanted to put them all in my book. Well, you know, I was definitely going to zoom in on that recurring thing because that continuity, it's been the key to my business. Yeah. My super fast business membership has been going for 10 years now and my silver circle membership's been going for nine. Wow. So I'm a huge fan of recurring income and the lifetime customer value for those programs is very high. 
in fact, I don't spend anywhere near as much to acquire a customer because I do these podcasts <laughs> as most businesses. So you end up with a high profit margin business. But I see your point. A lot of people are just looking at that first sale. You could often spend more than the first sale to acquire the customer. Mm-hmm and then make all the money in the back. And that's what the big players are doing in the market, right? And that's why they can out-advertise you and they can scale much faster because they're prepared to spend more to get the customer and to wow the customer out of your hands and into theirs. Yeah, I think I talked in the book about, you know, our whole boardroom with our newsletters. We started off with, you know, once we were successful that we didn't have to make money on the first sale. So we went out to the second sale. And ultimately, we went out to the third and in some cases, the fourth, because we were accumulated cash and it was smart to reinvest that. You don't want to go out to third year when you don't have any cash, but you will accumulate cash when you start going out more than a year and you have to look at year two. And the other thing that you said that was really important was, I think, acquisition is the sexy part of our business, you know, getting new customers and, you know, everybody wants to get new customers. But to me, the sexy part of the business is the renewals, which, you know, you just uh, reaffirmed. You don't have to, as you said, you don't have to go out and go out on Facebook and get leads because you're keeping your customers happy and you're keeping your customers with you. And in a B2B environment, like with a mastermind or a, a coaching group, you know, how many people can you have? I mean, you, you know, it's a finite number, so you can keep that group full. I mean, my mastermind groups, I have 70, 80% renewal rate as well. So I don't really have to fill it, you know, with any new people, at least, you know, not a constant, you know, attrition and then fill the blank spaces. So I think that the sexiness of acquisition is blinds a lot of marketers into the real sexiness of retention. I've noticed a trend where people are obsessed about acquisition. So the people who are Facebook ad dependent, who are spending 99% of their energy getting customers, often have a pretty weak product at the back. It seems to be a correlation there. Yes. (laughs) So the suggestion here, of course, reading between the lines, is focus on having great product and dial up that frequency. I mean, for me, my repeat sale is more or less the next payment for the membership. As you've mentioned before, that renewal rate, that's the gold. If I can have a client staying for three years, that's very valuable to me, but it's also very valuable to them because they wouldn't stay unless they're getting a great return on investment. Well, and that speaks to, you know, quality of product or quality of service. So you can't ignore that. I can't believe, and I don't know if this astounds you, but so many marketers today they do a launch, they, you know, get a 30, 40% return rate, they make money, and they're content with it. And I just wonder if they, you know, worked on the product as much as they worked on, you know, the lead generation and the traffic, I think they have a much better business. But that's me. When you say return rate, you're talking about refunds, right? Refunds. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 No, it's like I have a whole chapter in my book at <laughs> pointing out that some of the flaws of a business model where the launch is their business model and they haven't figured out that it's just a promotion. Yes. It's a channel. Some people just sell the same product every year for 10 years in a row the same way with the big hyped up launch. But the other thing that people don't realize with the launch is from the launch math, which is the fantasy number, if everyone paid their payments and if no on refunds like that's that's the millions of dollars people actually document when they're talking about their launch take out the annual payments and the payment defaults which will be quite high on a part payment plan 
take out the 30% mm-hmm. refunds, take out the 50% commission, take out the overrider for the copywriter, and then your excess service costs and bandwidth and hosting and affiliate manager and all the other extra costs. You could easily have what looks like a seven-figure launch netting a couple of hundred thousand dollars at the end of the day and then you're toast for another year until the next big launch and i'm seeing now finally some of the people who are doing that for years and years and years are starting to think about uh, recurring continuity programs monthly subscriptions etc it took them a long time i just couldn't figure out why it took so long (laughs) i think but it's good to see sensibility restored and i got off that launch bandwagon even as an affiliate yeah i mean i think one thing i'll say about it though is i mean to me if you look at launches as a channel it's like okay i have my launch channel and i have my membership channel and i have my search channel and all of a sudden your business has multi-channels and it's not just a launch to launch and of course, those launch businesses are vulnerable because if you're doing one or two launches a year and that's all you're doing and one of them goes south or a bunch of affiliates don't mail for you, you know, all of a sudden you're in the red. They always stop working eventually. That's true. That's true. You know, the number of people I speak to when they've left it too late to start diversifying is astounding. So that's one of the clear overriding messages. You can't over deliver for your audience if you don't have great product. And if you're single source dependent and something stops working and you go out of business, you're not helping anybody. No. And, you know, that's the great shame. You talked about going into certain businesses five years ago, et cetera. And I'm wondering what sort of decision-making filters do you use when you decide what business or market you want to go into? Well, you know, that was a big decision because I had been at Boardroom for 34 years. So that was the biggest decision to leave boardroom and go out on my own. But I knew what I wanted to do. I knew that that one was, I did this stuff for 34 years and now I'm going to teach it. And so that was an easy one. During the 34 years at boardroom, trying to decide what business to go into was, you know, as the years went on at boardroom, I used to do a lot by the seat of my pants. And it was successful and not successful. But when I started doing some research, like some, and I talked about this in the book, I started doing concept testing. I started letting my audience tell me what I wanted, what business I should go into, rather than me being so smart and telling them what they wanted. And it sounds simple, but you can get caught up, you know, in your own success and say, well, you know, I'll invent this or I'll do this product and it's going to be fine because you know i said so and it doesn't work that way i like that you talked about humility in the book yes but you know i've seen the even worse scenario where people don't even have the success and they're going to come up with a <laughs> first time in the world product and yes. take their wonderful idea to market i mean yes. that's very common in the in the early phases yeah i think you have to be a lifelong student as soon as you read your press clippings and i talked about we had an infomercial business that Probably with all the different sources and, you know, in three years, we probably did well over $300 million or more. And then, you know, I, everybody told me, you know, the infomercial business is one out of 20 work and three out of the first four that I did work. So I think I could do no wrong. And so I started coming up with shows with my team. I was approving it, but I was coming up with the shows and the next nine we did all flopped. 
And a couple of them were really expensive. I mean, one of them cost us a million dollars. So, you know, you can make up a lot of mistakes when you make 300 million plus. And so I could make those mistakes, but that I made nine of them after, you know, three out of four successes is interesting that I could let it go on that long. So, you know, that was like a big lesson in, you know, don't read your press clippings. You know, nobody's assuming you're a genius. You know, you've got to come up with the products that your customers want. And, you know, I had a call just today with a potential mastermind member and we were talking and he asked me a question. He goes, I think I'm an expert in this. I think, you know, I could do this, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, do you want to do that? And he says, no, but I'm good at it. I said, well, you know, that's one way to go. It's possible. But why don't you try to find something that meets your need for, you know, fulfillment and meets your customer's needs? And that's the sweet spot. That's when you hit it. And so when I created, you know, the Gene Schwartz books were, were given to me as, as a, a, an opportunity, I knew that I could turn that into a really good business. And it was something that it was a labor of love because Gene was my mentor. When it came to my mastermind groups, I knew that I could run a group in my own image and I would do it the way I want to do it, but I would keep asking the group, you know, what they want and what they don't want after every meeting. And so it's always been, you know, reformatted. And I guess the answer to your question in my current business, it's a lot simpler in that I'm just trying to, you know, keep the customer satisfied, but not assume that I know all the answers. But the same was true at Boardroom, except it was with consumer products. And if I was launching a book or a newsletter, I wanted to have a lot of data before I launched. So I think that's my best answer for that question. I like it. I mean, the evidence is out that business can be tough. Look at Google and their attempts at social media. Mm -hmm. uh, we had Wave, Buzz, Plus. I mean, big company like Google with all those smart people, they failed spectacularly multiple times. Yes. So it, it is tough. It is. And that's why you have a background in statistical analysis. No, just the opposite. I mean, I was an English major. So, oh, really? I, yeah, I paid people and I had hired people to do that. The one thing I was really good at, though, and I was surprised because I did not have a propensity for math or numbers, is that I did have a really good sense of once I got the numbers, I was able to interpret them. But now statistical analysis, I hired a guy with a PhD in statistics who ran all of our models for us and all of that. But if you had told me when I was in college that I would have gotten good at this, I would have told you you're crazy. But I really gravitated towards adapting the numbers. And if I got them in a way that were, you know, really gave me the summary data that I needed, I could go to town. I mean, I really did really well once I got the numbers. But no, I was not statistical analysis at all. Um, but I, I think I talk in the book about how it was imperative for me to have somebody to do that, to do the database work and to do the list segmentation, to do all of that modeling. And I recommend to people with large databases to, you know, if they're not good at that themselves, make sure that they get somebody who is. Gotcha. Yeah. I, th I think I read your thing where you're saying it, you're talking about regressive databases and you're saying it was a technique you used throughout your career 
with the help of a top-notch statistician, since you're an English major in college, I've mushed together two sentences and come up. That's okay. That's okay. I was thinking about, you know, lying and calling myself a statistics. No, no, that's good. That's a great correct. And I'm interested to know, you know, it would be good for you to share at this point just a little concepts of where you've come from over the last few decades. You've obviously got an, an enormous amount of experience, but if you condense it down into a little short story of the Brian Kurtz career record, what have been the highlights for you over the last few decades? Oh, God. There's a lot. A lot of disasters, too. But, <laughs> you know, a couple of uh, quotes that I can go with, and they sound simple, but they're not. So the first one is, first find out if you have a business. That was from Gordon Grossman, who was the architect of the Reader's Digest in the 60s. And he was a great consultant for me. And what he means when he says, first find out if you have a business, it's basically saying, what is the minimum amount that I need to do to prove this business model. So it's not like, you know, when when you go into a creative meeting and there's a hundred, you know, test ideas on the whiteboard, how many of those do you have to do? And it's probably only one or two to prove the business so that if it works, you know that you can go on to the next group of tests or you can abandon for the most part. Every time I did that, it was so valuable because it enabled me to pyramid on the really good ideas and get off the bad ideas quickly. So first find out if you have a business was a big one. Dick Benson, the the father of direct mail said, you know, you have to believe your numbers. And that's where, you know, I went out and got a statistician to do my numbers for me. And then I had to really, you know, calling controls and, you know, understanding that when you call a control in year one, it might not be the same in year two with the renewal rate. I mean, those are lessons that are so valuable today that were, you know, just mind boggling. And yet it was such a simple concept. Another one from another mentor was uh, from Adolf Auerbacher, who was the architect of Meredith Publishing. And he was the architect of Ladies Home Journal and Better Homes and Gardens. And he said to me, follow the anecdotal evidence. And I use that all the time in my career. I mean, the biggest success of my career was when we went into the infomercial business And it was after, you know, 16 years of waiting, of figuring out how to do it. And once I had the model, I was able to follow the evidence of how other people had done it, put my spin on it and made it work for me. You know, I was a slow learner because it took me a long time, but it was really, really valuable to not have to invent everything. You don't have to invent everything. You know, that's what the the chapter two in my book is called Original Source. And it's such an important chapter that I wanted to put in the book because it's not that you want to just honor your mentors and honor the past. You want to do that and not to take a walk down memory lane, but you want to be able to take the lessons of the past and repeat them in the future with better results. And that's been my prescription now. I mean, I have my mastermind group and I teach them and I bring in speakers and I bring in as many channels as I can. But I'm also a member of different mastermind groups, Jeff Walker's, Joe Polish's, Robin Robbins. And so I spend over $100,000 a year on my own education still today so that I can stay on top of what's new and hot, bring it back to the basics, the original source, and make it even better. 
So I'm trying to think of the broader things without getting too granular. But those were the broad concepts that I think have stood the test of time for me and still do. And then, of course, you know, your list is the most important thing. I mean, no matter how you say it, your audience, your avatar, your customers, doesn't matter. If you don't have your list dialed in and segmented and it doesn't matter what copy you put and doesn't matter what your offers are. You got to have the list dialed in right to get the program working. I think that's almost been my secret, how I get away with not being a brilliant copywriter. It's just I've got a great relationship with my audience. And you talk about relationship capital, and obviously you build a business around that with your masterminds. I want to ask you about some insights in that in just a moment. But just to recap what you said, one of my favorite lines from the movie Patton, which my mentor forced me to watch multiple times, because <laughs> there's a lot of valuable lessons in it. Yes. There's this scene where he goes to battle in a field where there's been many battles before and Patton was famous for studying the battlefields for many centuries before. He even thought he could talk to the previous warlords, right? But there was a scene where he was in a tank battle against Rommel and he utters the words, Rommel, you fabulous bastard. And Rommel had literally written a book on tank warfare and Patton used that book against Rommel on the same battlefield. Wow. <laughs> so it was such a great lesson in using what's already there. And it's amazing how many things that are new are actually deeply rooted in the past and history repeats I'm yes. reading the diaries of my great grandfather who a hundred years ago was in the west coast of Africa and he was talking about how the natives were getting replenished from the coconut water these days you can go to a yoga studio and find it in the fridge <laughs> <laughs> because they've discovered the refreshing uh, nature of it how it revitalizes you but you know the old is new yes and I like the other idea, you're talking about cross-pollinating ideas from best practice, essentially the service that I offer my clients as well, is to see something that works well. I have a student of mine, did a new thing a week ago, and he already generated over 200,000 eyeballs to his offer wow. from that new thing. And, and so now I've got this knowledge, I've been sharing this with a couple of my other students. So it's so powerful to quickly access ideas that are already in existence rather than having to invent it. Yeah, and also with that, I mean, what you just said, competition is coexistence. So, you know, all boats rise when you can share ideas. And, you know, the idea of keeping it a secret, well, you can, but, you know, you're going to die one day and it, it's never going to get out. So why not share it? Yeah, and if you can get paid for that too. Yeah, there you go. So it leads us to a, a topic of the mastermind groups and relationship capital. It's funny, last night, one of my students sent me a picture of your book and he said, any good? <laughs> I'm like, well. And of course you said, no, nah, it's pretty shitty. No, I said, oh, actually, I'm chatting to Brian in the morning. Oh, that's funny. And he's like, no way. Like of all the books on Amazon right. that he could have sent me, he was hoping to learn how to run really good networking events and masterminds. That was his hope because he knows you are good at that what would be your tips in terms of pulling together great high level relationships and networks because you're clearly good at that yeah you know i'm reluctant to talk about what i do as networking because i don't really like the term but i do think that i call it contribute to connect and i think that if you spend your life contributing a hundred zero meaning i give a hundred percent you might give me zero, you might give me 10, you might give me 20, it doesn't matter. That if you constantly are giving 100 zero, what's going to happen is if a certain person doesn't give you back anything significant, but someone else does, I think it's all related. And if even if it's not, 
It's the way I justify it. And so 100-0, like I never use the term meet me halfway, for example, because I never think that that's useful. I'll get into the specific in a minute, but if you're giving 100-0 all the time, you're going to end up with relationships that'll last a lifetime because you're always contributing. You're always in contribution. So as far as some specifics, you know, in the book, I talk about the boardroom dinners and we had these phenomenal dinners and just, you know, the idea of being intentional in everything you do, even dinner. So, you know, a lot of people, when they get a group together, they get a great group together and it's wonderful. You know, you get them in a room and they have a cocktail party and then everybody sits down wherever they want. And, you know, it's a nice evening. But imagine if you orchestrated that a lot more in terms of seating people with other people that they could do business with or have a lot in common with. Having a conversation around the table, one conversation, you know, after dinner so that each person can share their expertise, things like that. And there's a lot more to it, but I have a lot of things in the last chapter of the book which talk about relationship capital and, and the chapter's titled Playing the Long Game. And it's all about that if you've done things right, and I'm looking back now more than I am looking forward, but I'm still looking forward, but I got a lot more to look back on. And I look back and I said, how did I get here with the amount of people that I know and the amount of people who are willing to contribute to me? And it's because I was always contributing 100-0 all the time. And then I put things like the dinner concept. You know, you put together a mastermind of people you've contributed to before they even joined. When they join, it's, you know, just like gravy for them. And so it's been a satisfying life. And the downside is that, you know, you end up maybe giving a little more than you get. But I'll take that rather than, you know, keeping it to myself and looking for a way for everything I do for somebody that I have to get something back in return. It's so stress-free and it's incredibly rewarding. But yeah, I mean, I've gotten taken advantage of by certain people over time. And at some point, you know, you can write them off or whatever. But the amount of times that that happens versus the amount of time that the positive happens, it's not even close. So I don't know if that's exactly the answer to the question, but it's really the key to it. I went to the foundation, which is contribute to connect, don't just network. I like that. You know, I'm on the same page. I love my Maldives mastermind. I spend a week with 10 people mm -hmm. and you go so deep in a week on a boat. Wow. <laughs> you don't escape. So, you know, you get a lot covered over that time, even when you're not always together at all times, but the little groups that form are great. And at my events, I make sure we have big spaces for the meals, which I provide on site so they don't have to leave anywhere. And we have round tables and they move tables each session, which causes the venue chaos. They have to replace the glasses each session, <laughs> which is a small price to pay for the networking that comes. I love the vibe that comes from the connections. Yeah. It's so important and it's missing from a lot of marketing. So, you know, we just have so much overlap, but you also bring so much new information to the table as well. One of the things that really resonated with me. I love this one. You said email when you've got something to say, not daily random stuff or something to that effect. Yes. And I love that because some mechanical marketing, it just gets a bit boring and contrived after a while. Once you know you're a piece of a machine or being spat out of a production line as a customer, you start to turn off a bit or tune out. I really like that because I had that methodology for a long time. Sometimes I wouldn't podcast for a while because I didn't feel like I had anything to say. Mm-hmm. 
and then other times I'll be more productive. Same with my videos. Even though we are fairly consistent with producing them, I only record them when I feel in the moment. Things have to align. I've, I've got to have uh, not too many crinkles in my shirt. I would have had to have shaved in the last mm-hmm. day or two. And I have to be really excited and interested in the thing that I want to talk about. And then I'll batch a few. So I like that concept. And I'm wondering how you came about that. You know, I want to combine it with the fact that I think consistency is also important. So I decided a few years ago that I would blog once a week. And so that's Sunday morning at 6am. And every Sunday morning at 6am, if you're on my list, you get my blog post. And I decided that there's no way that other than that, I didn't want to be, it was kind of like an accident because I didn't want to be beholden to a schedule, even though it might've been better for my business or it might've made me more money but I didn't want to be beholden to it for the same reasons that you don't want to be beholden to it. So that gives me the freedom, as you said, to do it when I want to do it. But I think having the weekly Sunday is important because then people are expecting to hear from me. And it's funny, my list has grown and my open rates have gone up, which is interesting. And I think it's because, A, because, you know, I go on podcasts like this where the people are serious and you know they know that I'm not selling anything except from you know my books or whatever well they better go and buy the book after this yeah right <laughs> it'd be crazy not to i still got more notes that i would have liked to talk about you know with rfm and 40 40 yes. 20 and there's a lot of gold in that book I've read it twice now and still managed to mess up the statistician part. <laughs> but that, I like that. Though. I like that. Yeah, like it's a good book. And at some point, I'll you know, when I launch something, I might go out a couple of times a week, but it's not going to be uh, all the time, and it's not going to be you know that kind of marketing. Again, it's a philosophy. It's not necessarily right, but that's how I got there. Well, you said if someone tells you to email daily, take it under advisement. And you said respect customers. Yes. That's the main thing. That's the main thing. Look, some of the launch marketers, they'll send six or seven emails on the last day. And I just can't see how that's respectful of a customer. No matter how you frame it, that's just pure greed. And they'll justify it by saying, well, I got all my orders on the last day. Well, okay. Yeah. Or that, you know, they're trying to help the customer, but no one's being helped by having seven emails on the same day. I'm sorry. It just doesn't sit with me. No. But in any case, it's all fun. We've shared a lot. I really appreciate you coming along and just explaining some of the concepts in more detail. It was a good first catch up. It's the first time we've ever actually spoken and I'm glad we did. I know. I know. It's amazing. I can imagine we'll do this again in the future. Also, we put a full transcription up at episode 669 on superfastbusiness.com. So if you want to read what we talked about, it'll all be there, full PDF available for you. Every word is transcribed onto our page, available to the public. And Brian's book is over at overdeliverbook.com. And uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Okay, thanks, Jim. Discover how to build your business super fast. Check out superfastbusiness.com.